You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is lecture number four on the theology of the Old Testament. I'm Father Kenneth Baker, editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. In this lecture, we're going to cover the two books of Chronicles, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and finally, the fifth one we're going to do is the book of Tobit. We're going to move into the book of Tobit. Now, in the older Catholic Bibles, the books of Chronicles were called Paralipaminon, Paralipaminon, the book of Chronicles. These books cover basically the same area as the books of Kings, but from a different theological perspective. There's a certain formula that the author follows in describing what happened to the kings of Judea in the course of the history of the kings. I mentioned in the last lecture that we had the kingship for about 400 years, including David and Solomon, 500 years, and basically it was a failure. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 before Christ and never restored again after that. They were destroyed because they did not remain faithful to the covenant that they were committed to, that is the covenant entered into by Moses on Mount Sinai. These books of uh, Chronicles, they follow the history of Israel down to around the year 400 before Christ. And they're involved with genealogies of the various kings, how they descend from David and come down to the time of the author. It was probably written around 400 or 350 before Christ. There's a preoccupation in these books with the temple, presence of God and his people, genealogies to trace the kings back to David because the Messiah, the one who is to come, had to be a son of David. That's why the genealogy was important. There's concern here with temple music. And so the author was probably connected with the priestly caste or a Levite. We don't know exactly who it was. The theme of the two books of Chronicles is the messianic promise that was made to David by the prophet Nathan in the second book of Samuel in the seventh chapter. There, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord said, no, you're not going to build a house for me. He reserved that for Solomon, as I mentioned in the last lecture. But in response, the Lord says, I will build a house for you, that you will have descendants. There will be one on your throne forever. You will always have a descendant on your throne forever. Now that came to an end in 587 when the kingship was destroyed. So how could this promise be fulfilled? All of God's promises have to be fulfilled. Of course, ultimately, the promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, who is a son of David, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
He's the universal king of all time and for eternity. So that's how the promise was fulfilled. That's why that text is extremely important. The text of 2 Samuel 7, when Nathan makes this prophecy that there will always be a descendant of David on his throne. Of course, David would understand that in a physical sense, whereas God intends that in partially in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense of Jesus as the true Christ the King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, the author of these two books of Chronicles goes through all of the kings of Judea. He's not concerned about the kings up in the north in Israel because they were separated from the true worship of the temple right from the very beginning. So he just discards them. He's not interested in the approximately 250 years of kings in the north in Israel and Samaria. They were destroyed by the Assyrians in 721, carried off into captivity. They disappeared from history. The author of Chronicles is interested in the descendant from David on the kings of Judea. So he follows that from David to Solomon down to the destruction of Jerusalem. And after that, the descendants all the way down to Zerubbabel in Jerusalem in the 5th century. He brings it right down to his own contemporary time. The concern here is the future. Who is going to be the king? How is God going to fulfill his promise to David that he would always have a successor on his throne? A point to look for in the books of Chronicles is the notion of the centralization of the worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem. The author sees all other worship, especially at Bethel and Dan up in the north, which was in Israel where they still had some shrines, as violations of the covenant that God made with David. So the two books of Chronicles then, they present us with a re-reading of the books of Samuel and Kings. It's a re-reading from a special theological point of view. So the books contain a special type of theological history. It's an interpretation of the history of the past from the point of view of the centralization of the worship in Jerusalem, in the temple, with emphasis on genealogies and the priests and the music. Now, in the first chapters of the first book, he gives a whole history up to David and the chronicler presents David and Solomon in ideal terms. He doesn't speak about their sins. He doesn't mention anything about the adultery, the murder, and so forth. Solomon falling away from the true worship with his pagan wives. He omits all of that and presents them in a positive sense because it's a theological idea of tracing the history from David down through Solomon and all the kings in Judea down to the present time to prepare the way for the Messiah, who is the anointed one, who is to save Israel and to save all of mankind. So we're dealing here then with a special, what we might call a theology of history on the part of the chronicler. The first thing to note then in the chronicle history begins with David and his covenant with the Lord Yahweh. That's extremely important and it's related to the temple and his whole family. The relationship between David and the temple and the proper worship in the temple 
is a key point in the theology of the chronicler. Also, there's a strong note in this book of divine retribution. Those kings like Hezekiah and Josiah who promoted the true worship of Yahweh were rewarded by God by having peace, by having a lot of children and so forth. The other kings who were involved in false worship were all punished by God in one way or another. The final two verses of the book end up on a note of hope as far as the future is concerned of the Messiah that was promised to David and looking forward to the future. It's 400 years after the books were written that this promise is fulfilled on the part of Jesus. Now, the books of Chronicles are not quoted in the New Testament, but the author's emphasis on the importance of the temple prepare our minds for the relationship between Jesus and the temple. One time he points to himself and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And St. Paul says, don't you realize that you're temples of the Holy Spirit? So that notion of the temple continues in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching of the church. So that's a special kind of theological history that we have in the two books of Chronicles, which retell the story of the books of Kings, one and two Kings, from a little different perspective. But it basically covers the same history. If it's just pure history, it's the same thing repeated. But it's a different kind of theology, different perspective that you find in the Chronicler, this notion of being faithful to the covenant and the centralization of the worship in Jerusalem, that the true God for him can be worshiped in the proper way, only in the temple in Jerusalem, where the sacrifices were offered every day and constantly. After the book of Chronicles, we have two more historical books called the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Babylonians captured Jerusalem in 597, they totally destroyed it. They destroyed the temple, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared, every building was destroyed, and the people were carried off to Babylon, over to the east, over where Iraq and Iran are at the present time. They left some peasants there, but all the professional people, the princes, the metal workers, the scribes, the members of the royal family, they were all either killed or taken off as slaves over to Babylon. Now, they were in captivity there for 50 years, from 587 to 537. Around 538, the Persians destroyed the Babylonian Empire, and a new king came on the scene, Cyrus, who said that all these peoples that had been deported by the Babylonians should be sent back to their homes. So the, the Israelites were sent back to Judea. They went back to Jerusalem and started the very difficult and lonely task of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. So they started to build the temple around 535, something like that. They worked on it for a while, but they found it very difficult and they didn't complete it. They gave up on it until a couple of prophets were raised up that urged them to rebuild the temple and they finally rebuilt it. But the Persians sent two individuals back to uh, reorganize the religion. One was in the fifth century, this scribe Ezra. Ezra was the one who called the people back to observing the law of the covenant. And it's really Ezra, who was the founder of the Judaism that was existent in Israel in the time of Jesus. He was kind of like the ancestors of the scribes and the Pharisees, of that kind of strict, kind of legalistic type of 
following of the law. That's Ezra. Originally, they were one book together, but now they're two. They have 10 chapters in the book of Ezra. For example, we read in the third verse of the first chapter, the Cyrus king of Persia says, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So they are sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Around the middle of the next century, they send Ezra there to try and restore the religion. The people had kind of lost their religion. So Ezra, learned in the law and the covenant, he goes back as a priest and leader to restore the religion. So he gets the people together and he reads the law to them. And this book of Ezra shows a special interest then in the roles and functions of priests, Levites, singers, and other temple personnel. It's the restoring of the temple and temple worship. This is around 445, the middle of the 5th century in the history of Israel that this takes place. Now, they were harassed in rebuilding the city because there were no walls around the city. And the enemies came and attacked them, and they would work with like a hammer or a trowel in their right hand, and they'd have their sword in their left to protect themselves against their enemies. So the king of Persia sends one of the princes, who's an Israelite, named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is sent back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And here we're talking about 440, something like that. So you have Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is the one responsible for restoring the true religion among the Israelites who had returned from Babylon, living among the pagans there for almost 50 or 75 years. So the function of Ezra then is to restore the religion. The function of Nehemiah is to rebuild the city, especially the walls, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to protect themselves against their enemies. This book indicates it has a focus which is primarily on God's dealings with Israel or how God acts in history. And also in this book, as we saw in the Deuteronomic history, this Deuteronomic history is operative here. There's emphasis on the connection between sin and punishment on the one hand and fidelity and reward on the other. So those who sin are punished. Those who are faithful are rewarded like Ezra and Nehemiah. And the author here of these two books is telling us that Israel's future depends upon the faithful worship in the temple in Jerusalem. It's the only place for legitimate sacrifice. And they have to cut off all contacts with corrupting foreign influences, such as the Philistines, the Samaritans, and the Egyptians. So out of this, you have Ezra then as the founder of Judaism, which was the Judaism and the practice of religion dominant in Jerusalem and Israel in the time of Christ. Whereas Nehemiah is the one who was kind of like the political organizer. He's the one who made the city secure. And that which identifies the Jewish way of life then after Ezra and Nehemiah is fidelity to the law of Moses. So far as I know, no direct quotes of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the New Testament. But they established the religion. Uh, that was dominant, that is the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that whole thing that's so present in the New Testament, that comes from this particular time 
from the 5th century around 445 down to 430, 420, when Ezra and Nehemiah were operative in the reestablishment of the Jewish religion during that particular time. So that's kind of an outline then of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, we don't have very much history from the time of the fall of the city of Jerusalem in 587 down to the coming of Christ. For almost 500 years, there's not very much. There are only a couple of prophets, as we'll see, Malachi around the year 400 maybe. But these two books tell us about what went on in the 5th century. And then the two books of Maccabees, which we'll take up very shortly, the two books of Maccabees tell us what took place in the 2nd century. But during the 3rd century and 4th century, there's practically nothing. We don't have any historical books in the Bible that cover those particular periods. So that's kind of a brief summary of Ezra and Nehemiah, the establishment of Judaism. This is still known at the present time that the very strict Jewish people at the present time, they are descendants of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees of the time before Christ, going all the way back to Ezra and Nehemiah. And these are the people that Jesus had to deal with, and they're the ones who were instrumental in putting him to death because they have a different interpretation of the fulfillment of the Torah, and they refuse to accept Jesus as the promised Messiah, son of David. Now, the final book we're going to deal with in today's lecture is the book of Tobit, the father of Tobiah. And here we have the story of this wonderful man, of his fidelity to the Lord. And here you have the first really developed theology of angels in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Because here we have the good angel, Raphael, who leads Tobias, and the wicked angel, Asmodeus, who torments Sarah and her husbands. So this book of Tobit in the Bible comes right after the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. And it was probably written, we know from the language of the book, that was probably written around the year 200 before Christ. It was most likely composed in Aramaic in Jerusalem, but the identity of the author is not known. Now the theme of this book is about God's providence. God's providence over each and every one of us. So his providence is with us every day and every hour, whether we recognize it or not. God is the master and Lord of history. So God blesses families who remain faithful to him while living in the pagan world. These were the stories about Tobit, a pious Jewish family who were deported by the Assyrians and carried to Assyria, and they lived in a pagan world. The righteous and believing man should be patient in times of trouble, confident that God will deliver him, and God protects and rewards the man who observes the law and practices works of mercy, such as almsgiving, burying the dead, prayer of thanksgiving to God. Now, this is a story of a pious Jew who's deported to Assyria. And contrary to the law, he buries those who die. It's something like Mother Teresa, the stories of Mother Teresa over taking care of the Hindus in India. He would take these people and bury them, and there was some kind of law against that, and he was punished for that. One night he went out and he buried this person. He came back, and since he was unclean, being in touch with the body, 
he wasn't able to go into his home. So it was hot and he slept outside his house underneath the eaves and there were birds up there and the bird droppings got into his eyes and he was blinded as a result of that. Now Tobit has a son, a young son, Tobiah, and there's a man off in the distance over in Assyria that has much money that's owed to him. And he figures since he's going to die, he wants to get this fortune for his son Tobiah and he wants to send Tobiah off into Assyria to get this money and to bring it back. For that he needs a companion. And around the same time, the author tells us that he has a cousin over in Assyria, I forget the name of the town right now, over in Assyria, whose name is Sarah. And this woman, <laughs> she was married seven times and on her marriage night, each time the husband was killed by this evil spirit, Asmodeus. And so she was without a husband. So she's a cousin. He goes over there and he claims this money. He gets this money, but he sees this woman and he falls in love with her. He's warned that if he marries her, he's going to be killed by this evil spirit. But he has a companion who he thinks is a cousin of his, but is really the archangel Raphael. Raphael means the healing of God. The healing of God. Like Michael means who is like unto God. Raphael means the healing of God. So he's in human appearance. He travels with him and on the way they catch this big fish. And so the angel tells him to keep this fish. We're going to make use of that. So when they get there, he tells them to take part of the fish and to burn it. And with the smoke of this fish, he drives away the evil spirit Asmodeus. He marries Sarah and they pray during the nuptial night. They pray all night. They drive away the devil and he's not killed. He survives. So he takes this woman and he takes the money and with the assistance of Raphael, he returns back to home to his father Tobit. The son is Tobiah. The father's name is Tobit. Now Tobit is outstanding for his fidelity to the law of being a pious Jew who observes all the commandments of the Lord and so does his son Tobiah. So they return and the father is delighted and he takes at the guidance of Raphael, means the healing of God, he takes part of the fish and applies it to the eyes of his father and the scales fall off his eyes and he's able to see again. So his sight is restored, his son is restored, he has a daughter-in-law and the fortune that he had left with this person over in Assyria is returned with his son and his son gets this inheritance. All right, so there are a number of points here that should be pointed out. The theological points to look for in this wonderful book of Tobit are this. First, God is nearer to us than we think and he's ready to assist us if we remain faithful to him. So it has to do with the providence of God. Secondly, love for God must be shown in virtuous deeds and not just in words. Tobit actually goes out endangering his own life and buries the dead when he's forbidden to do that. Thirdly, God rewards filial piety, that the son is faithful to his father. We should think highly of burying the dead properly, remaining chaste before marriage, being faithful to one's wife or husband, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. All of these virtues are held up for high esteem in the book of Tobit. And finally, the book offers an advanced 
what's called angelology. That is a theology of angels in this book. You have the wicked like the devil, Asmodeus, and you have the good angel, the archangel, Raphael. You know, there are only three angels in the Bible that we know their names of. Michael, the archangel, Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel, the strength of God. So we meet here in this book a devil, Asmodeus. Asmodeus is his name, who harasses human beings and a good angel, Raphael, who guides, protects, and assists Tobiah. And both angels are presented as personal beings, not just as impersonal extensions of the power of God. Now the book of Tobit is not actually quoted explicitly in the New Testament, but the man Tobit exemplifies the manner of life typical of the just who depend on the Lord to meet all their needs, like Joseph in the New Testament is said to be a just man. In this sense, he's a precursor of Zachary and Elizabeth, of Simeon and Anna, and also then of St. Joseph. Some of Tobit's instructions to his son about charity and almsgiving were taken up later by Jesus and developed further. And he begins a tradition that later develops into the golden rule when he says to his son, Tobiah, do unto no one what you would not want one done to you. So do unto others what you want others to do to you, or the negative form is don't do it to anybody else that you don't want done to you. This book of Tobit is a wonderful example of that, of angels and divine providence. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.